20th century Christology was animated by a concern to confront two main questions. How does the historical Jesus, as interpreted in light of modern exegesis, relate to Chalcedonian understanding of Christ in the church's tradition? And second, in a post-metaphysical age, in the wake of the influence of the revolution in philosophy conducted by the great figures of the Enlightenment, how might we seek to find God, not by metaphysical reasoning, or at least not primarily such, but rather as revealed in history, and specifically in the event of Jesus crucified and resurrected. Canonic Christologies developed in figures like Tomasius in the 19th century, later by Barth, Bulgakov, Pennenberg, Moltmann, and Balthazar in the 20th. They represent irreducibly diverse expressions of what I'm characterizing here as a common movement. For all of them, in some way, the human limitations of the historical consciousness of Christ as a figure within history is strongly maintained, while also centering on the canonic mission of the Son, itself expressive of inner Trinitarian life. The human life and death of Jesus lived in lowliness and historical facticity as a life much like that of others is a mirror or indication of the inner moment within God as word and son that person or mode of subsistence in God, whereby God is both posited within himself and expressed outside himself as self-emptying love, filial obedience, historical becoming, self-offering and surrender, and by a host of other ambitious new analogies meant to signal the mystery of eternal love in God, the Holy Trinity. In light of this idea, the crucifixion is an especially poignant manifestation of divine love for it is precisely in Jesus' dereliction on the cross in human subject suffering in which he is subject to agony, death, and potential separation from God in the cry of dereliction, that he is also expressive of an inward self-emptying caritas that pre-exists in the eternal life of God himself. The eternal Calvary on high is the transcendent condition of possibility for the temporal Calvary laid before our eyes in history. The late work of Balthazar provides an especially illustrative case of this form of reflection. In the second volume of the Theologic, Balthazar claims that the incarnation is the most concrete instantiation of the analogia entis, the likeness between God and humanity. The structure of the reasoning here is noteworthy. The knowledge we have of God philosophically, Balthazar tells us, that's to say from outside of Christ as it were, is minimized by him in his account. While the knowledge we have of God just in virtue of God's human life among us is seemingly maximalized. In his treatment of the divine nature, for example, Balthazar reads the Old Testament revelation of God's identity in highly apophatic or negative terms so that the naming of God in his divine essence is rendered for us quasi-equivocal for human discourse. We speak of God metaphysically and conceptually apophatic terms above all, in highly negative language. Yes, we may say philosophically that God exists, but saying what God is in himself is inconsistent with the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. In other words, something very like the Bardian prohibition on the classical divine attributes of scholasticism is justified supposedly by a greater attentiveness to scripture. In turn, the revelatory locus of knowledge of the inner trinity is especially given in the human nature of Christ, 
and acts as a quasi-univocal depiction of the inner life of God. You might say what he takes away with the equivocal ambiguities of negative discourse about the divine nature is handed back to us in manifold ways in the univocal discourse of the divine nature given in the human nature of Jesus. The human nature of Christ, its actions and sufferings precisely due to its unity with the divine nature within the person of the Son makes the inner mystery of God most intelligible to us. When Christ experiences separation from the Father in virtue of his mission as man, for example, in the crucifixion, it is indicative of an eternal distance of freedom and love that exists in the persons eternally. Despite important differences, there are noteworthy parallelisms between the structure of this structure of reasoning and Luther's depiction of the theology of the cross in the Heidelberg Disputation, which Father Durand mentioned yesterday and which he has mentioned to me before, so I should give him a footnote here, where the notion of a theologia gloriae based on the scholastic study of the divine attributes is contrasted negatively with that of the theologia crucis based on scripture by Luther. Indeed, for Balthazar, knowledge of God by way of the Analogia Entis Christi is nowhere more manifest than in the crucifixion, for here it is Jesus' self-emptying that is expressive of his personal communion with the Father and his relationship to the Holy Spirit, so that the ground of reality that is Trinitarian is manifest as love, precisely in Christ's human, free self-surrender to the Father at Golgotha. In Theodrama 4, when Balthazar describes what, is, what the obediential suffering and death of Christ indicate in God, he is beholden to both Bulgakov and Bart. The human kenosis of Christ in time, his mission of obedience unto death, indicates a more primary uh, ontological mystery of kenosis in the persons of God. The Father self-empties as a condition for the eternal positing of the Son, who is begotten of the Father by a free self-abdication of the Father's will, so that the Son can respond to him in entire unconditioned freedom. The Son, in turn, gives himself eternally in free self-emptying surrender to the Father in an expression of love that is anticipatory and indicative of the Spirit, who proceeds as love from the Father through the Son in their mutual acts of self-surrender. Consequently, the economy of the Son's self-offering at Golgotha has its deepest ground in the eternal canonic mutual relations of the Trinitarian persons. The cumulative relation, revelation is given in the Son's human dereliction on the cross, his, state, his descent into the state of alienation and damnation, condemned as one who takes the sins of the world onto himself by love for humanity, and thus Christ's own descent into hell into the place of the greatest distance from God and the solitude of abandonment by the Father has as its precondition ontologically in the eternal canonic, has its, sorry, has its precondition ontologically in the eternal canonic and infinite distantiation of the Son from the Father in his anticipatory obedience to divine love, the Holy Spirit. There can only be a creation, a created freedom, a possibility of sin and disobedience, and yes, even a hell of solitude and distantiation from God. But also, there can only be a free decision for union with God by love in human creatures, and an acceptation of mission by Christ and by ourselves in our free obedience. Because there is, first of all, before all else, a mutually reciprocal freedom of love shared between the Trinitarian persons. 
Freedom for love, we might say, is the transcendent condition for all other moments in the divine economy. And I mean, if you wanted to explore this, I don't say it here, but you could add, um, you might say, fundamentally, there's the mutually shared self-surrendering freedom of the Father and the Son. But stemming from this is the creation as a canonic act of gift, making space for then free creatures through a canonic act, making space for the incarnation as a canonic act, making space for the self-giving in the mission and crucifixion as a canonic act. To use a, mu a musical image that Balthazar does not use, but that is fitting, there is an opening first, there's a first opening dramatic movement of the symphony of the Trinity before there is every other movement within the symphony of the economy. And every later movement is anticipated and in a sense contained in anticipation within this first one. Furthermore, because God is a, a mystery of freedom for love, he is free to be in diverse and seemingly contrary states. That is to say, the love that is God is so free as to be capable of being simultaneously both, victoriously transcendent of suffering and as suffering, essentially passable due to love, as immutable in perfection but subject to change for the sake of love, as eternal in identity but able to embrace and in a sense freely contain within itself temporal modes of being, so as to enrich and express his eternal eternity outwardly. And I do think Balthazar in some way says all these things of the divine nature of God in these paradoxical formulations of expression of the freedom of love. In presenting things this way, Balthazar has made several key breaks with the antecedent tra tradition of Catholic theology that should be noted. First, he has effectively bid farewell to any plenary development and use of the De, De, De Deo Ut Uno treaties of classical Trinitarian theology, the treatment of God's simplicity, perfection, infinity, eternity, and so on, at least considered as a contained treatise within and as expressive of Trinitarian theology. If he continues to assert some of these so-called divine attributes, we are not told in any systematic way outside brief intuitions why or how they are to be understood ontologically or why their use is warranted epistemologically. Second, he has also bid farewell to the use of the classical psychological analogy common to both Eastern and Western fathers arguably founded in both the Joannine theology of the Logos and the Pauline identification of Christ with God's preexistent wisdom. Father Emmanuel Durand paid a lot of attention to this yesterday, helpfully. This twofold move away from the classical inheritance of scripture and tradition in both fathers and scholastics, or I should say more fairly, scripture as interpreted by the tradition of both fathers and scholastics, has for its effect that the self-differentiation of the persons must take place now under different auspices, not primarily by means of relations of origin according to an analogy of spiritual processions of knowledge and love, nor by denotation of a shared common divine nature or essence proper to God in his eternity, the so-called homoousius formula. Third, then, Balthazar has accepted a language of mutuality or duality of wills into the distinction of persons so that the intelligibility of personal self-differentiation depends in some sense upon freedom of self-effacement and surrender maintained by the Father and Son reciprocally. This makes the affirmation of a unity of divine will and a unity of divine essence itself ambiguous and does 
indeed suggest the possibility of a narrative drama occurring within God as the precondition of the historical unfolding of the creation and redemption. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, there is little or no systematic recourse made to the classical teaching of the diathelic, of, of diathelicism and the Third Council of Constantinople that posits that there are two wills in Christ, human and divine. Without denying this truth, Balthazar is, of course, the author of a major study on Maximus the Confessor, and in that sense helps rehabilitate a whole sensitivity to the origins of this teaching in the tradition. But without denying its truth, Balthazar in his mature work simply rarely alludes to it. And he has no real thematic, it has no real thematic role in his thinking. Or perhaps we could say more accurately that it's an idea subject to radical reinterpretation in light of a canonic notion of the mission of Christ. Consequently, in the Theodrama, volumes three and four, especially in the English editions, the human willing of Christ in his temporal mission and obediential freedom is alone indicative in a quasi-univocal way of the inner life of the Trinitarian person's relations. When the Son obeys the Father as man in time, in virtue of his human willing, we see into the self-surrendering love of the eternal Son as God, and even see by a mirroring reciprocity the kind of canonic love that the Father has for the Son from eternity. The human will of Christ is thus not depicted as distinct from and subordinate to his divine will in an instrumental fashion, as with Maximus and John Damascene, for example, nor is his divine will depicted as identical with that of the Father and the Spirit as that of God, the three persons having one will that is identical with the divine nature. Instead, we are presented with something like an inverted monophysitism where the canonic life of the Son in his identity with man manifests precisely only in his human nature as such what it is for him to be Son in his very person eternally as self-surrendering love. Of course, Balthazar assents notionally to the whole given framework of the tradition and knows and understands its scope and depth in an exceptionally cultured way far better than I. But one may rightly ask whether, despite this, he has adequately preserved essential elements of the tradition in his creative and impressive rearticulation of it. It should be evident from the tone and character of my cursory remarks that I am indeed skeptical about this. However, one should also understand that I take Balthazar's views to be relatively standard in modern Trinitarian theology and to resemble in various ways those of Barth, Bulgakov, Pannenberg, and to some degree Moltmann on the various features indicated above briefly. If Balthazar is to be singled out, it is perhaps because he has developed the views mentioned above in a more coherent way than some of his colleagues and in deeper conversation with previous tradition. I take it, for example, that Balthazar is an excellent interpreter and systematizer of Bulgakov, and in many respects uh, grounds Bulgakov's impulses or intuitions in a deeper conversation with the tradition. In the second half of this presentation, I'd like to explore the idea that the crucifixion is a manifestation of Trinitarian love from a Thomistic perspective, having recourse especially to principles of diatheletism, the notion that there of there being two wills and activities in the one composite person of Christ, those that are human and those that are divine. They are distinct but not separate so that the human agency of Christ reveals the divine agency, 
It is always the eternal Son made man who acts in virtue of both his divinity and humanity in concord, symphony, and subalternation of his human willing to his divine will. The love of Christ as man in the crucifixion then is expressive of his divine identity as God and of the Trinitarian relations. His human nature not only manifests but also conceals the presence of God, hidden and active in the Son's human suffering, in the, human's act, in this, in the Son's human activity, suffering, cadaveric death, and bodily glorification. This hiddenness of the divine nature in Christ, crucified, died, and buried, is important since it points us towards the irreducible place of an eschatological reserve regarding our knowledge of God's inner life. And here I will stand with Aquinas, and at least in some respect with Luther, against it, I take it, Balthazar and Bart. The teleological aspirations of our current knowledge of God in faith point us toward a more perfect union we do not yet possess, and thus stand at a remove from, and as a criticism of, every possible perfect being ontology derived within Christian theology or outside of it through philosophical metaphysics. How can we depict rightly the analogical interval between the divine will and the human will of Christ crucified so that we think rightly about the manifestation of the Trinity and the hiddenness of the Trinity as these are revealed in the crucifixion of the Son of God made man? So to begin with this project, first we should note three facets of Aquinas' diotheletism, itself a recapitulation of themes found in Maximus the Confessor that he assimilated self-consciously from John Damascene. The first is that the human activities of Christ in his ordinary human understanding and elective freedom are formally identical with those of other human beings. There's human knowledge and human freedom to love in Christ as there is in every human being. They are characterized by an orientation towards the universal horizons of the truth and the desirable good, but also occur through the medium of abstraction and within the contextualized development of a historical consciousness. What I mean is, Jesus is a human being, as a human being, truly learned and reflected, thought and suffered within the context of a particular cultural setting, albeit one that was influenced deeply by divine inspiration and the presence of the prophetic knowledge of the God of Israel. Second, these activities in Christ, while, while authentically human in every regard, are also subordinate instrumentally to his divine knowledge and volition in such a way that they are illuminated from within and inspired in concord with a hidden divine wisdom. In Jesus' human thoughts and decisions as a first century Jew who expresses himself within the context of Second Temple Judaism in its language and symbols, we see the manifestation of the divine truth of the Son, marked by the volitions of divine love which pertain to the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. What Christ chooses and what he suffers deliberately is instrumentally indicative of the presence, activity, and eternal designs of divine love. Third, this manifestation of love in the human heart of Christ is interpersonal so that his action as man is not only expressive of the divine will, but of his filial identity. The Son does what he does from and for the Father, and as the source of the Spirit, who proceeds from him as Son, but also repose, reposes upon him and directs him inwardly as man. 
The personal relations are implicated in all of Jesus's human speech acts, gestures, and volitional choices, precisely because the person in question is the one who is from the Father, and who, as being from the Father, has the Spirit sent upon him as man, and who sends the Spirit upon the world with the Father as the Son. The personal actions of Christ as the God-human are theandric, so they manifest in a distinctly human way the presence and activity of the Holy Trinity. Only the Son is human, but when the man Jesus acts in virtue of his divine agency, for example, in healing miraculously, he acts with the Father and from the Father, and he acts with the Spirit and as the source of the Spirit in the mysterious power of his deity. He acts in this way, however, not only when he heals or teaches with authority, but also when he voluntarily suffers, insofar as his human sufferings freely consented to in obedient human love for the Father and out of love for the human race are indicative of a divine will to communicate Trinitarian life to the world precisely through the epiphany of the cross. Aquinas provides us with two overlapping but irreducibly distinct ways to think about divine love in the Holy Trinity as both essential and personal based on the internal requirements of Trinitarian monotheism. So now I'm going to talk about essential love of God and the personal love of the, of the third person. Essential terms pertain to that in virtue of which the Trinitarian persons are one in being and nature. If we can speak, for example, analogically of the wisdom and power of the Father, the Father is one who is powerful and wise in a mysterious way, then we must also ascribe this identical divine wisdom and power to the Son and the Spirit, who are each the one God, even in their distinctions of person. The Father communicates all that he has to the Son and Spirit, so that each of these persons is all that we may speak of God being. If there is then, uh, if then there is one God, and God is something we call love, essentially, then God is whatever this love is, essentially, that is to say, in virtue of his nature. Just because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in being in essence, as the Council of Nicaea states, so too they are also one in love, not merely relationally or politically by communion, but ontologically and essentially in identical ident individual identity. They are each the one God who is love in all that God is, just as they are also one in being, wisdom, goodness, power, and so forth. However, Aquinas also rightly denotes that the spirit is love, not only in an appropriated sense, but, but by proper analogy. The Father is wise eternally, and in knowing himself generates the Son as his begotten wisdom. An important point from St. Augustine, assimilated by the Augustinian tradition in the West, the Father does not become wise in virtue of the generation of the Son, but expresses his eternal wisdom in the begetting of the Logos. Therefore, the Son can be wise essentially, having received all that he has from the Father, and he can be personally the begotten wisdom in a way the Father and the Spirit are not. This is because he receives immaterially and is the fruit of understanding, and so is properly, properly denoted by the notion of logos or verbum. But the spirit is something similar in the order of love. The spirit proceeds immaterially from the Father and the Son, and if this procession is, if this procession is from the Word and has an immaterial content, then the appropriate analogy is to the spiration of love 
from the will, the Father and the Son, knowing and loving one another, spirate the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is personally and properly the uncreated gift of love from the Father and the Son eternally. The Spirit who is personally subsistent love, even as he contains in himself all that is in the other two persons, including the essential or natural properties of God. What am I arguing here? Up to this point, I've argued first that the Son's human actions, they're integrally human, and his sufferings, manifest the divine life and will, as well as the communion of Trinitarian persons. I've also argued that the love of the imminent Trinity can rightly be spoken of in two complementary and non-competitive ways, as essential and as personal. The question then is, how do the actions of Jesus in the crucifixion manifest the essential and personal dimensions of Trinitarian love? Let us consider first the essential love of God, first present at Golgotha, hidden in the human actions and sufferings of Christ crucified. Aquinas notes that God, the Holy Trinity, first essentially loves himself from all eternity by an eternal love and creates all things that emanate from him by giving them being freely as an expression of divine goodness from within the divine love God has for himself. The redemption recapitulates this pattern. God loves his own eternal goodness and freely gives from this pre-existent wellspring the gift of grace and redemption manifests especially in the incarnation and the crucifixion. Christ's human decision to suffer death by crucifixion for us, then, is a human manifestation of the Son's divine desire to recreate the world in light of Trinitarian goodness. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But we could also say, just as fittingly, the Son so loved the world that he gave his life humanly. The Spirit so loved the world that he gave all of humanity new filial life from the cross. This essential love of the Trinity is present in the crucifixion and in the resurrection like complementary ontological diptychs. I'm talking about it like medieval images of Christ crucified on one side of the altar and resurrected on the other. The essential love of the Trinity is revealed in the crucifixion of the Son's inalienable union of being and essence with the Father and Spirit, which is unsunderable. You might say that in Christ crucified, there is the essentially unsunderable love of the Trinity present and hidden even in the dying and dead Christ. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. The I am of the unchanging, unsunderable love of God, the Holy Trinity, is revealed in the crucifixion. The union of the Father with the Son as God is greater and more perfect than the union of, of Christ's human nature and his divine nature, which are not sundered either at the cross. The God, the Son on the cross, is grounded in the unalterable union of love with the Father and the Spirit by which they are in him and he is in them, in virtue of their shared divine life, nature, essence. By the same measure that love can be recreative, even from the cross, manifesting Christ's own explicit acts as man while dying. In Luke's gospel, he forgives his enemies and conveys grace to the good thief. Just as in John's gospel, as interpreted in the Catholic tradition, he denominates the Virgin Mary the mother of the church, and he voluntarily wills the salvation of the world. 
all things he wills as man, but which he can effectuate and communicate in virtue of divine love, which he shares with the Father and the Son from the cross. But of course, this same love is also eclipsed and hidden, since the God who is love is silent in the suffering, death, and cadaveric burial of the Son. This hiddenness of divine love remains in our own lives and in ongoing history prior to the eschaton, as we will return to shortly. On the other side of the diptych, the resurrection, meanwhile, manifests the eschatological victory of divine love that was formerly hidden and present in the cross. The cadaver that is truly the word made flesh, containing the hidden power of God, is now glorified, alive, and life-giving, casting eschatological perspective on all other things as penultimate. God is able to make all things new. But this same resurrection is concealed from our ordinary perception and known principally for this time in faith, standing at the horizon of all ordinary human experience. It casts an ultimate light on the provisionality of every human accomplishment or intra-historical achievement. You might say that the world is, in a hidden way, irradiated now by the victory of divine love, Trinitarian love, the love essential to the three persons, manifest in the event of the resurrection. The personal love of the Trinity we mentioned above, meanwhile, is that which pertains to the Holy Spirit in his procession from the Father. How does the human activity of Christ crucified reveal the Holy Spirit as love and gift? The answer is very simple. Christ sends the Holy Spirit upon all of humanity from the cross. The eternal procession in which he is one with the Father, spirating the love of the Spirit, takes place imminently in a recapitulated fashion within history at the cross. I'll say more about this in terms of processions and missions below. You might say, what is true eternally in the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son is recapitulated and manifest in the mission of the Son, sending the Spirit from the, through the, mystery, the Paschal mystery. Aquinas tells us that a divine mission just is a procession, an eternal procession, with the addition of a new presence. The Spirit is sent on mission in the world as the eternal procession of love, now made manifest to us in a new way, in a new presence. Jesus tells us as much in the Gospel of John, unless I go to the Father, the paraclete will not come to you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. This sending, so I'm suggesting, happens from the cross, symbolized by the miracle of the outpouring of the water and blood. The Spirit comes out from the side of the dead body of God, sent from Him as Word, that's to say, the Son is sent from the Father on the cross as the Word, who speaks into the world. But the Spirit's also sent from the Word, sorry, what I mean to say is the Spirit is sent from the Word, breathed forth from the cross. But the Spirit is also sent from him as man, or by the man Jesus, whose humanity is the instrument of his divine person. Jesus breathes his last, breathing the Spirit of love upon the world. And again, there's a diptych structure. Christ breathes forth the Spirit from the cross, but also the night of Easter in John 20. He again breathes humanly, now alive, glorified, and spirates the Spirit upon the apostles who are entrusted with the office of the forgiveness of sins. The created gift who is the Spirit is now a gift to the church. 
sorry, the uncreated gift. The uncreated gift, who is the Spirit, is now a gift to the church, the uncreated soul of the church, sent upon the apostles to live with them, within them, and with them in us, the mystical body of Christ, who are alive in the Spirit. If what I'm arguing is correct, then, in fact, the classical psychological analogy of word and love, far from being something we should renounce in order to penetrate more deeply into the mystery of the crucifixion as Trinitarian mystery, is key to understanding the identity of God as love revealed in the cross. This analogy of the word and love is part of the way we understand Christ as the concrete analogia entis, since his human activities of knowledge and love are expressive of the nature of God and the relations of the Trinitarian persons. Now this being said, and I, here I'm just skipping, uh, there's a development to make, which is how, do the, how does the human knowledge and love of Christ reveal the, the processions uh, according to the psychological analogy? And also you could work more on how that's related to the way his human knowledge and freedom reveal the divine nature. But um, just alluding to that and passing on, there are different ways to understand the psychological analogy of Trinitarian life because in fact Hegel, in his own way, uh, also has a very prominent place for the psychological analogy. Hegel offers us one way to think about this based on his understanding of divine freedom for diremption. In divine diremption I understand to be in Hegel a a freedom of God to be under contrary states of being, which I'm about to talk about. In this way of thinking, God is free to develop essentially, you might say naturally, under what appear to be, initially to be his contraries in time and death, and to develop historically as freedom precisely through the medium of created human spirit. It's often said that theological problems arise from philosophical errors. And some people point to Hegel in this respect and say, well, it's a philosophical problem that's introduced into modern theology. But this may not be the case in Hegel's Christology. In fact, he creatively rearticulated the classical Lutheran communication of idioms, wherein the divine properties were attributed by Luther to the human nature of Christ, such as omnipresence, the omnipresence of the humanity of Christ, a view famously criticized by Calvin. Hegel, however, inverts this theological paradigm and claims that the human attributes of Christ are attributable to the divine nature, so that God's activity of self-definition as freedom is able to include and make itself manifest in human history by the incarnation and in our human understanding of that history through philosophy. Behind this view, we see a collapse of the analogical interval between the divine and human natures of Christ. No longer an analogy, so much as a free exploration of the possibilities of identification through univocal assumption of the finite into the infinite, or the diremption of the infinite into the finite. The church fathers typically employed the communication of idioms to attribute properties of each of Christ's natures to the one subject of the word made human, but not to attribute these properties of natures directly to one another. The child in the cave created the stars, and the God who is all-powerful suffers personally on the cross. These are true expressions. But the fathers do not say that the eternity of God, God in his nature and deity, becomes temporal by free, diremptive self-identification with the finite. 
or that the life of God is itself subject to death on Good Friday, so that something in atheism is ontologically true for a moment in time in virtue of a divine dialectic, as with Hegel. Manifest in and through the culture of Christianity and the symbols of the New Testament, especially in the ontology of the incarnation and crucifixion. That is to say, he is saying something uh, as a theologian, irreducibly, and this invites a theological response. Aquinas provides us with an alternative vision of God's freedom in history that is more apophatic and eschatological. For him, the two natures of Christ and his two activities remain always distinct and inseparable, not identified. This means that the human nature and its states are genuinely expressive of the condescending love of God, both in its essential character and in the person of the spirit, but not univocally indicative of the divine nature as such. And there are many sides to this irreducibility. If human nature is not divine nature, then the conditions of communion with God are naturally unmasterable because human nature is never, as it were, adequate to what the divine nature is. And the break between human and divine freedom always remains. So too, natural knowledge of God in its limits and misery remains irreducible to revelation and vice versa. The God who is revealed in the crucifixion also remains in many respects concealed and hidden from us as we await a perfect knowledge of him in the eschatological life that is to come. We do know the Trinity truly revealed in Christ, but we do not see the Trinity in its inward mystery or comprehend it. There will therefore never be perfect clairvoyance regarding the mystery of God achievable within the imminent frame of human history nor perfect assimilation of the mystery of God into our terms. We wait for the beatific vision. This interpretation of Christ underscores that our future in God has been initiated in the resurrection and the life of the church, but it has yet to make its plenary appearance. God's being is ever greater than we can yet conceive of. Jesus' theandric actions, the concrete analogia entis, now stand as a critique of all future merely philosophical pretensions at comprehensive understanding of reality. They also invite us to rethink anew in a perennially co coherent way across time the destiny of the human race as a destiny in the very Trinitarian life of God. Taken in this sense, Aquinas offers us an ex excellent example of a theology of Jesus' crucifixion that allows us to understand his human kenosis as the anticipatory unveiling already in this life of the inner mystery of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Tremendously clarifying. May I ask you one particular distinction you made first and then the question? Um, the distinction is, of course, the one between um, the personal and the essential in the way we interpret the Trinitarian uh, relations and the Trinitarian persons, and also um, the way in which we interpret Christ's life on earth, including the crucifixion. It seems to me that there's an enormous difference when one reads that from the perspective of the personal and then sees the personal, so to say, modulating the natures accordingly, or whether one starts reading it from the natures. And I find others like that. Um, I 
ambivalent, and I can't really make out what he means. Because it seems to be that he attributes things to the human nature, which should only be attributed to the person of the incarnate world. The difference which that makes, I think, is that if it's the person, then we remain always within the Trinitarian relation, because the person of the Son is not the person of the Son without the relation to the Father, without being the begotten, eternally dependent on the divine begetting. Now, if that, so to say, is the way in which we proceed in mythology, everything that we might then say of the natures are the essence never apart from the person. And that seems to me as to be the whole thrust of Luther's Christology as a Christology of radical personal union. So whatever you do, whatever you say, what you say about the ubiquity of Christ's human nature, you have to say first, because of the personal union, I can say that. And not in abstraction from that. If you say it in abstraction, things um, become catastrophic. Then you now, if that's also true of Aquinas, that would offer a very different reading. Because it seems to me that many of the problems occur because we read it in the order of the Summa, starting with the essence, and then finally getting at the treasure path uh, to uh, Christology, by not seeing that this is just a prolegomena. For if we want to talk about divine persons, we've got to get clear what divine means, but we're reaching the heart of it once the homotensios is interpreted in terms of um, the personal relation. So making the personal the priority all the time in Christology, wouldn't that also mean to maintain the Trinitarian framework consistently? My second point. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me respond. That's very important. What you just said is really important. So I'll give you a second point because it's very rich. But let me respond to that briefly. So I have three things to say to that. The first is, I think Aquinas is rightly a disciple of the Cappadocian Fathers and John Damascene, through John Damascene of the Cappadocian Fathers, in affirming that acts of nature are always only ever acts of persons, whether with regard to human nature or divine nature. But it is also the case that acts of persons are only ever also acts conducted through and in virtue of natures. So the personalism must also be a naturalism, but with a, a right balance. To your, to your point, the person is always the subject of action. The second thing I would say is uh, there's a virtuous circle, or a, a, to use a Balzarian word, an, an, an ellipse between the revelation of the Trinity given to us in the human mission, in the mission of the visible mission of the Son and the Spirit leading to a speculative derivation of understanding of who God must be as Trinity in a, you might say, a, f a form of thinking that could be in principle understood distinct in distinction from the humanity of Jesus. I mean, we can think about the actual imminent life of God as Trinity. But then you go back and you see the Trinity revealed in Christ in greater depth. So uh, I mean, what I mean is we think about who God is as Trinity revealed in the visible missions we can think about it speculatively, abstractly, theoretically, integrally, and then we can see more deeply into the mystery of the visible missions of who Jesus is in his relationship with Father and Spirit. We try to do it, I'm trying to do it in this paper, we're all trying to do it in our papers here. So there's a virtuous circle. The third thing I would say is 
Uh, the De Deo Ut Uno treatise is essential to theology precisely because there is a mystery of interpersonal communion uh, in which the three persons are not just one by a moral solidarity, but in virtue of a shared nature and individual being. So to understand in what respect they are one in a way that is utterly distinct from and dissimilar to three human persons, as rightly underscored by the Fourth Lateran Council in the greater dissimilitude of Trinitarian communion to ecclesial communion, underscored, talking about the analogy of being. We have to be able to talk about what it is for them to be one. And in that respect, the De Deo Uno Tritius has to be understood as an integral moment within Trinitarian theology. So I think, and I'll finish with this ironic statement. I, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna murder his name, I think, but Martin Shimnitz, how do you say his name? Yeah, this fellow, John Damascene and Thomas Aquinas have very, not identical, but they have very convergent understanding of the of communication of idioms. And it would be a very interesting ecumenical project of recovery to think in this, with these more traditional scholastic thinkers of the deep integration of the tradition here on this key point. I think that Schimitz is not identical on the point you mentioned, for example, uh, but there is so much convergence and profound Christological harmony that's unexplored there. I think that there would be a lot more work to do in the Orthodox, Lutheran, and Catholic conversation about Christ. Go ahead and take your second question, and I'll be briefer my answer, I hope. Um, thanks very much for the I found that a very clarifying answer. My point is basically that something doesn't have any divine nature or a human nature, apart from being the son of the Father. So he has the koinon only to the ilion, and in this particular form. This is, I think, what Thomas Aquinas says by saying that he has it in the form of the son, yes. the son word, and so on. Got so it. this qualifier is always present. Once we get rid of it, we end up in, I, I think, very mobile waters. Uh, but the second question is very simple. Could it be that the language of divine hiding is also a way in which God approaches us and gives us something to understand ourselves? Luther, the language of um, veiling, is a language of revelation. God veils God's self so that we can know. And therefore, the subcontrario in the Heidelberg disputation uh, is not a metaphysical principle, but is the way in which we can know God, subcontrario, in contrast to our wish to be like God. So there's a sociological point, and it's not some kind of Hegelian general principle. Um, uh, thanks very much for doing Hegel so much honor. I think, first of all, we have to understand that the philosopher who tries to make sense of the Christian gospel before we then criticize and say, well, he might not have succeeded. Okay, let me just say one brief thing. I mean, to understand the modal realization of the divine nature in the Son that is proper to him, as distinct from the spirated mode in the spirit or the paternal mode in the Father, I think you still have to have something essential that you understand them to share. But it's true, you only understand what they share if you also qualify the fact that qualify that understanding by saying there's a modal realization of what it is to be God in the Son, so the Son is only ever, say, for example, good, powerful, knowledgeable, wise, in a filial mode, okay? Um, and then with regards to Luther, I was doing at the end that the bow to like the, the idea that.
the, the misery of our natural knowledge of God in, impl implied by the limitation, implied by Heidelberg disputation, suggests something where there's room for revelation. And I think the hiddenness of God also teaches us our um, desperation before God, but also God's, um, well, God teaching us something about our finitude in the misery and limitations of our understanding is also a great grace, and it teaches us something about the graciousness of God in faith. Thank you, Father Thomas Joseph. So, I have a hunch which you have triggered in my head, and I would like to get your opinion. You know Balthazar better than I do, and several people in this room know him far better than I, so I want to, to get a sense of whether I might be going in the right direction. Around page two, you were talking about the quasi-univocal depiction of the inner life of God in Balthazar, and I share your worry about a kind of uh, subtle, unspoken univocity or univocal presuppositions that might be work in the background in Balthazar's vision of Christ and the way the Trinity is revealed. Later, you talked about how Balthazar doesn't give the two wills of Christ's doctrine, classical doctrine, enough space in his own reflections. Then we got to the communication of idioms, Lutheran people. Here's my suspicion. Between Thomas and Balthazar, are we perhaps equivocating on the term nature? Is this why we really can't understand each other, the Thomists and the Balthazarians? My suspicion runs in the following direction. A Thomistic and otherwise scholastic account of God and the Trinity would take this foundational, a, a notion of nature as a principle of action and, and um, accounting for the specific identity of being. And this informs accounts of what is freedom, what is communion, what is love, etc. I have the impression that this is not so much at work in Balthazar. But maybe my hunch is wrong. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, there, some, some, Michelle and, and Martin will speak to this with greater expertise. There's no question. And they will rightly defend Balthazar from the profane uh, ignorance of uh, my secondary you know, level of understanding. That being said, what I would say in his defense on this point is that I take him to be not intending to capitulate to the contributions of Hegel and Schelling in two different ways, but trying to recapitulate the tradition so as to rightly or helpfully assimilate something of the modern German idealistic uh, ontology and its you might say dramatic reflection on the history of human reason, divine reason, inhuman reason, and the history of human freedom, and how human freedom and human reason in history can be expressive of divine wisdom and divine freedom. So I, I, it's true that it's not a very, Balthazar speaks much more when he's a Thomist, or when he takes from Aquinas, he, he appeals much more to the real distinction between essence and existence in a way that's clearly dependent upon and influenced by Gilson, uh, among others, and in conversation with Ulrich. Um, so there's a lot more of the metaphysics of essay than there is of natura. But I do think he's trying to explore how nature as freedom in God and nature as freedom in human history can be 
re, um, can be interpreted to convert the history of European thought back to a primacy of love. As, so the history of human freedom should be a history of love, of freedom for love. Not the will to power, not the will of autonomy, but the will to love. And that's where the Ignatian mission of self-gift and commandment and freedom come in as ways to think out how to resolve the existential conundrums of freedom through loving self-gift, being con conformed to Christ and the mystery of the uncreated love of the Trinity. And I think he just thinks that the scholastic contribution is in some sense just insufficient to treat our, the, the challenge of our own historical moment. So there's a very interesting conversation to have between someone like Pinkers and uh, Balthazar on how to think about freedom as freedom for excellence or freedom for love with or against the scholastic patterns. And I think that conversation could still go forward. So thanks for that. Just so I found the distinction you made on the two rules very helpful because to understand that passion you have to come in through the agony of the garden as well and see Christ's submission just to clarify, so the, the, the concerns with regards to the universal revelation of, of the passion um, would be that, uh, well, I suppose one of the concerns would be then, well, how is the passion itself salvific if there's something already in the Trinitarian life? How is that not salvific? And Christ's passion is. Um, but then also, if it's universal, um, well then I suppose even if there had not been sin, there would still be a necessity for the passion to reveal something of the Trinity yeah. in this process. Right, right, okay. Well, I mean, the way I'm going to respond to you is, is to say two things briefly. My worry, take Gethsemane, okay, the son in his human heart struggles in his act of rational obedience with the overwhelming natural horror of death, and perhaps, one may say, it's possible, with a deep human awareness of the gravity of sin and the gravity of evil that he is to contend with in the mystery of the passion. So he consents rationally to the divine will that he shares with the Father, but through a human struggle to choose that reasonably, like a soldier going into battle with a fear of death, he, he has to contend naturally with the natural human horror of sin and death and so forth. Um, I don't want to say, I do not want to say that that is indicative of an eternal distinction in the Father and the Son constituted through an eternal act of obedience of the Son to the Father. Or that there's something very like this movement of eventual surrender of the will and obedience that constitutes the eternal distinction of the Son from the Father. I do not want to say that. What I do want to say are two other things that are in the tradition that the human surrender of the person of the Son, human surrender of the Son in obedience to the Father, does reveal something about the Trinity's desire to, to, to um, redeem the world. So that in the Paschal mystery, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the consent to the mystery of the cross, the human surrender, we see a kind of a manifestation of inner Trinitarian love of the divine will received into Christ's human heart. And I, so there is a mystery of the Trinity revealed. And I do want to say also that in the human obedience, the primary, in a certain way, the primary formal drama is the drama of him meriting our salvation by loving 
where we have failed to love and by obeying where we have failed to obey as the suffering servant and redeeming us by descending into death in the human kenosis of the cross. And that that is, so that, you know, we're not just seeing a picture of the Trinity, we're, we're seeing the Trinity heal and redeem us as, as by the Son being one of us and living humanly as the new Adam. Okay? Thank you very much.